Okay, so um, what I want to do before we dive into a passage, like, do you guys know the first rule of studying the Bible? Open it. Context. Yes, yes. Somebody said it. I heard it out there. Um, So, man, that's what I want to do just briefly. Um, So, man, Paul is the writer of this book. He is writing a letter to uh, his son in the faith. It says in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, um, it says, Titus, mine own son after the common faith. Um, So, man, who, who was Titus? Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 23, it says, Paul, Paul acknowledges Titus as a partner, as a fellow helper, and as a messenger of the churches. And it reads, uh, whether any do inquire of Titus, he's my partner and fellow helper <clears throat> concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. And, man, right now, there are messengers of the churches in Kenya. You guys know the Fife's, right? Man, they've taken James and his family. They've gone out to Nairobi, Kenya. They're going to have fellowship with them. They're going to do the work of evangelists, going to evangelize. But then they're going to come back, and they're going to give us a report. Like on Tuesday, on the Tuesday night prayer, they'll give us a report and how we can be praying for them and how we can be encouraging them moving forward. And then that's exactly who Titus was. Um, and to say the least, you know, Titus was a faithful man. Again, he had the responsibility of visiting churches and communicating their health and was a partner to the mission with Paul, you know, the one that loved him and called him his own son. But something changes. In Acts 28, um, they had evangelized and won people to Christ in this island called Crete. You guys know where Crete is? Okay. It's called. It's near Greece. <laughs> I'll uh, just just say that straight up. It, um, it's just below Greece, so they're um, right, like they're right in the water. They're right under Greece. So, um, but again, in, in Titus one five, um, yeah, there's a there's a map of Crete. But in Titus one five, Paul tells Titus that he's no longer just a messenger of the church. But now he's been told to stay there and elect elders and to mature other believers, um, the young believers that are there. In Titus 1.5 it says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders to every city as I have appointed thee. So again, no longer was Titus just a messenger of the church for a short season, but now he was tasked with leading a church of young believers. This was a responsibility that the Titus hadn't experienced before in a land of Crete that didn't have the best reputation. Okay? Um, so, and they had a couple of negative influences. The first influence um, was Greek mythology. We talked about it being, man, it's in Greece. So, at this period of time, um, it was believed that Crete was like the um, was the birthplace of Zeus, like the the mighty, the most mighty god in Greek mythology. So it's not it's not bad to assume that that Crete was heavily influenced by idol worship and by false gods. And this was another avenue that young believers could have been enticed by. A second influence were 
that they were heavy that Crete was heavily populated with false teachers of the law of the law that had a reputation of being evil. So this is Titus chapter one, verse ten through twelve. It reads Paul says that for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So they were doing this all out of a motive of getting money. One of themselves, even as a prophet of their own, said that the Cretans, man, these people that Titus was placed to actually evangelize to, to grow in faith, Paul calls, call, Paul calls um, the Cretans and says that their own prophet said that the Cretans themselves were liars, evil beasts, with slow bellies. You guys know what slow belly is? It's like you're, you're always hungry. <laughs> you're, you're always consuming but never giving. You're never satisfied. So that's sort of a hard mission field to be in. And this is, man, this is Titus's first go-around, right? So... Um, Paul's heart in writing the book of Titus was that Titus would finally have in his hands this letter from Paul that would be a beacon of truth, right? Uh, a, a discerning word that could man, cut through all of the, the false worship, that could cut through, um, man, even the evil character of the people that were there. This this was a Paul. This was a. Um, a letter from Paul to Timothy to Titus to just give him an anchor that he could rest on. And that's what the book of Titus is all about. And just like for the Christians, I believe that Titus 2 can actually be an anchor for us on you know why we are living the Christian life and what our motivations are. Um, but first, I believe that it would be appropriate before we get into, oh, how do we live the Christian life? Well, well, what does it mean to actually be a Christian? And we start that off in verse 11. So it reads, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Okay, so according to verse 11, grace is what brings salvation, and it brings um, and it appears to all men. So it's available, it's, it's visible to everyone. But I think it would be appropriate to actually understand what grace means, right? I think, I think we as church folk are really good at using this language and this verbiage that's spiritual, but never really considering what it means. So I just want to share what the definition of grace is in a study that I did. So grace means favor or acceptance from God. And so what's cool is, is that, man, we can look back in Scripture, look at the first mention, and that tells us how that word grace is used and what its meaning is throughout the whole of Scripture. And the first mention comes in the context, man, of Noah. Do you guys know the story? Noah and the ark? Yeah. So in Genesis 6, God looked down on all of his creation and he saw that it was completely wicked. He saw that their hearts were evil. And in verse 7, he planned to destroy every living thing. 
But see what happens in verse 8. You know, amongst all this judgment that's coming from God. In verse 8 it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And verse 9 tells us why. Why did he get grace from God? It says that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations and walked with God. So the word just means righteous. Perfect means complete or mature. So Noah was a righteous man and lived a life that was separate from the world and separate from corruption. And that's how he received grace. And that's how it's used in the Old Testament. Another mention of this in the life of Moses is Exodus 33, verse 16. It says, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people, Moses and the Israelites, have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So we see separation is needed in order to gain God's grace. And David summarizes this Old Testament principle of how to receive grace in Psalm 84.11. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So in the Old Testament, we get to see that man finds grace by living a life that's separate from the world and by living righteously. Okay, so that's, that's the Old Testament. How is grace used in our dispensation in the New Testament? Let's see. If you read John 1.17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In Romans 3.24, it says, Being justified freely by His grace. So it's free through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5.15, it says, But not at the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of, many, of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abound to many. Right? So, in the Old Testament, grace was delivered by God to those who separated themselves and lived rightly and did all the right things all the time. But in the New Testament, grace is a free gift delivered by Jesus Christ alone and is given and offered unto many. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, for by, the grace, for by grace are ye saved, salvation, through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the God of the universe that made you and created you came in the person of Jesus Christ and He delivered grace to you and me. How did He do it? How did He deliver this grace to you and me? He did it by dying for our sins, being buried, and raising again the third day, defeating that sin and that death that you and me caused. And if you put your faith in Him by believing on Him in your heart, and calling on His name, He promises, man, His Holy Spirit will live in you and will completely change the course of your life. And on that day that you accept God's grace that He freely delivers, that He freely offers, 
you have biblically become a Christian. So Christianity starts at salvation. Christianity isn't you just coming to church and you know singing songs and singing praises. That that's not biblical. It's sort of like do, does you walking into a garage make you a make you a car? No, no. <laughs> no. So you just going to church and and even like doing good things like mentorship or whatever that that doesn't make you a Christian. Salvation makes you a Christian. Your personal choice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and accept His grace that He has freely delivered, that makes you a Christian. Key point number one is accepting grace through faith is the only way to salvation and the only way to become a Christian. So there's a, there's a question right now. Have you personally chosen to accept grace? I want you to think about that. It's not by, again, we talked about it. It's not of yourselves. It's not, it's not of works. It's not about what you do. It's by your personal choice to accept God's grace. Okay, so, so some of you guys, oh man, you're like, okay, I've actually accepted God's grace. I've, I've actually decided to do that. So, you know, now we know what grace is and how to accept it, what have we been called to after our salvation? Like, like, what's the lesson that grace is still trying to teach us in our everyday life? And, you know, thinking back to Titus and the Cretans, man, they were young Christians in this land of Crete who had accepted God's grace and put their personal faith in Jesus Christ. Yet there are so many distractions, right? We, we talked about the enticing words of men to draw them away from faith. We, we talked about, um, man, Greek mythology that, man, makes great, makes great Disney movies, right? Hercules is a banger. Uh, but man, I, I'm not going to put my faith in a God that, that isn't real. That's only myth. But what's cool is verse 12 sort of shows us what does it mean and how do we, how do we actually live the Christian life in this present world. He lays it out very clearly so that Titus and the Cretans can get it right. Verse 12, it says, teaching us, so grace is teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So again, okay. At the day that that we chose to accept His grace, man, all of our sins... We're completely forgiven. Past, present, and future, Jesus Christ personally took them on His shoulders and for a brief moment in time became sin for us and died for us that we would get His righteousness in return. Right? And what's cool is that when He died, after He died, He rose again three days. So then, so then that, that death and that sin, it doesn't hold Him. And because we are now in Christ, it doesn't hold us either. He has given that victory to us as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 through 56. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So you might be saying, okay, all right, after our salvation, okay, I'll, man, I got, man, I got it made. I, I can indulge in sin. I can, I can do whatever I want to now because, man, I have my ticket to heaven. I have victory now. But, man, not so. Grace is still te- trying to teach us something. And because we have eternal victory over sin, does that give us liberty to continue in sin? Romans 6 has something to say about that. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So there is a call to deny some things. Even after having this awesome victory that Jesus Christ gave freely to us, in this present world, we're called to live and to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So deny means to reject or to contradict. And, okay, you might be... So if you go to the next slide, ungodliness, what... What's a pirate doing? What in the world is a pirate doing up there talking about ungodliness? Let's let's read let's read uh, let's read Proverbs sixteen verse twenty seven, and hopefully this gives a little bit of light to to why a pirate's up there. It says, "An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and his lips there is a burning fire." Right. So, all right, you guys know what pirates do. They use their resources, they use their time, all in order to find, man, to find treasure that's buried underground. But ungodliness, what like a pirate unashamedly digging and searching out for hidden treasure, ungodliness and those who are ungodly willingly seek out evil things and evil lifestyles that will perish. Right? We dig it up. Right, right. We, we get our map. You know, we know where evil is. Those who are ungodly, we know where evil is. And they seek it out, unashamedly. But what's crazy is, is that ungodliness isn't too far removed from us. You and I were once ungodly. Before we knew the grace of Jesus Christ, we lived a life that was set out to evil things, right? Right? We got out our map. We knew the law. We knew what was evil. We knew what was right. But we still marked the spot. We still sought it out. We still knew what websites to go to. We still knew that, man, Stealing from our parents was wrong, but we did it anyway. And whatever is coming to your mind that you know is evil, we know how to do it. And before our salvation, we lived a way that was in direct rebellion to God. But even in that rebellion, look at Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? That 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 old man that is within us and will continue to be within us, but 
and used to control us all the time, even though we were in direct rebellion against the God of the universe, and we were digging up evil, and we knew where to go and how to get there, and we sought it out. Even in that rebellion, He died for us. Even though we're ungodly, He died for us. And He died for you. So, what's cool is is that God's grace gave us the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And with that Holy Spirit, man, we, man we've been given victory over, over ungodliness. We no longer are controlled by our old man. We're no longer controlled by who we used to be in the flesh. He has given us a new nature. And He's given us so much grace that we don't have to be controlled by it anymore. He's given us grace and power and victory to actually deny ungodliness. To deny our old man. But if you haven't accepted grace, you can't do that. That's one thing that that Paul has told Titus that the Christians ought to deny. The next thing is worldly lusts. And, you know, all throughout the Bible, lust has everything to do with self and it getting what it wants, regardless of consequence. And, man, in 1 John 2.16, worldly lusts are defined, right? If you go to 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And if you read Mark 4.19... This is what the cares of this world are meant to do. Verse uh, verse 19, it says, In the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. So, quick question. Does anyone know who the God of this world is? Who? Who? Satan? You got it, dude. Yeah, Satan's the god of this world. And Satan is strategic. In 1 Peter, it calls, they call him a, a roaring lion. Right? So Satan, the god of this world, uses the world to appeal to the things, um, the lust of the flesh, the things that we desire internally, our old man desires, all with one goal in mind. And that's to choke out the word of God man, that we're getting in Bible study that we're getting in mentorship, that we hear at main service. That is Satan's objective in using things of the world to choke out fellowship with God through His Word. And what it says here at the very end of verse 19, it says, it becometh unfruitful. That's, that's what Satan's objective is for you, is that you would not, be, you would not reproduce people who are like Christ in your life, you wouldn't share the gospel, you wouldn't, man, you, you wouldn't be peculiar to the rest of your friends, that you wouldn't be, um, you wouldn't be, um, sort of lost my notes, um, but it's called, the, Satan is trying to get you to be unfruitful and to not follow God and to choke out the word that he's given you. And, Man, like, just real talk. Like, in the past, in the past three or four months, there have been 
I can think of three or four people who, you know, we, we went out, man, we, we went to Laramie, Wyoming. We, we went on mission trips. We shared the gospel together. We did, we, we started discipleship. But the lusts of this world caused them to veer off, to veer away from discipleship, to veer away from mentorship, and to, to leave the church, some of them. And, it, and that's where their learning from grace ended. They didn't want to learn denying from the world, denying the world and denying um, ungodliness. When it came to letting go of their old life of sin and the things of this world, they no longer wanted grace to teach them. Instead, they chose to listen to and to take notes from the world. And key point number two is that our desire to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts is fruit of us knowing the grace of God. And this leads us to another question I would like you guys to think about. You know, what are the specific things in your life that you've been called to deny? And again, like grace is the one that's teaching you. This isn't out of legalism or because of obligation to your mentor or because... You know, you want to feel good about, you can point to all of the things that, that you don't do and that you deny to feel holy. But by the simple fact that you have accepted God's grace, you are willing to deny those things. So that was denying. That's part of the Christian life that Paul talks about. But now what living, how are we supposed to live day by day? So... Um, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. <clears throat> so living soberly, um, sort, of run, sort of running out of time, but living soberly means having a right mind and having nothing influencing the mind except the words of truth. In, in Acts 26, and we get to see like the first mention of, of sober, or soberness. And man, Paul is, is preaching the gospel. It's this, this king named Festus. And man, Festus accuses Paul of being mad, of being crazy. And this is Paul's response. Paul's response, he says, But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. In Romans 12, 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And lastly, in 1 Peter 1, 13, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. So, man, the world, you know, talks about soberness as, you know, getting drunk or, or alcohol or whatever. But, man, biblically... Man, God is calling you to have a mind that is sound. And it's, it's, not, it's not solely about what you consume you know, physically, but what you actually consume mentally. Mm-hmm. And Acts 26, 25, it says the words of the truth and soberness are right there together. So the truth of God's word actually keeps your mind sober, which is awesome. <clears throat> So that's so that is living soberly. Living righteously is doing what's right in accordance with God's word. In 1 John 3, 7, it says, Little children, let no man deceive you. 
he that doeth righteous, righteousness is righteous. In Proverbs 11, 23, it says, The desire of, righteous, of the righteous is only good. So, man, pretty straightforward. You know, living righteously is and doing what God's Word says. And lastly, living godly means having a reverence for God that results in a display of His attitudes and His characteristics. You know, in 2 Corinthians 7, just contextually, like, 1 Corinthians, man, the church of Corinth was in blatant sin, right? I'm not going to go into the direct details of what sin they were in, but it was, it was pretty gnarly. Um, but in 2 Corinthians, man, the, the church at Corinth, they recovered from the sin, and they had a godly mindset about that sin that they had committed. It says for, verse 11, it says, For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So man, in 2 Corinthians, it was a complete 180. They went from living in sin and living against God's word to 2 Corinthians 7. Man, they were, they were completely clear. They had God's mindset. And ultimately for us as a church, for those who are saved, the ultimate way in which we live with godly character in Christ Jesus is by us walking in the spirit. That's how we put on godly character. In Galatians 5:22 through 23 it says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law." In Ephesians 5:18 verse 19, it says, "And be not drunk with wine, wherein as excess, excess, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." So, Putting on godly character is actually conforming your life to God's word. That's how you can outwardly protrude God's character, is by walking in the spirit and allowing his word to dwell in you. And man, I feel like I feel like you guys know this. I feel like Jeff has done like a really good job of of trying showing you like directly how to live. But my fear is, is that why we're doing it, our motivations, our hope, if you will, isn't actually biblical. It's either trying to appease someone, trying to be someone that we're not, whatever. But verse 13, holy smokes, Paul lays it out on what our motivation ought to be for living Righteously and soberly and godly in this present world. Look at verse 13. It says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, right? We don't live this life because someone has told us to live it that way. No, it's not because of that. It's not because 
again, we, we live our life by a rule, by a list of do's and don'ts that gives us a false sense of holiness. It's not that. It's the sole fact that we will see Jesus Christ again. Right? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians four sixteen through 17 it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Right? So, so man, soon there's going to be a day in which we will see our Lord again. That is why we deny the things that He's called us to deny. That's why we live righteously and sober, soberly and godly in this present world. It's because, man, right, our Savior that took nails into His feet and nails into His hands for our sin... Right? Our Savior that we hear, that we hear from in our quiet times every morning. Right? Our Savior that we preach in evangelism. And man, we, we tell people all about him. The reason in which we do all of that isn't out of obligation. Isn't because we're trying to appease our parents, or because we're trying to appease our mentor, or because we're trying to fit in with the culture of Midtown Baptist Temple. It's for the sole fact that we will see Him again. We will see Him again. And we are waiting and looking upon His glorious appearing. It's not out of obligation. It's not because we want to appease someone else. It's because we have accepted His grace and we are awaiting Him Earnestly. As I close, um, I do want to show you guys a scripture that was really sobering to me. Um, like in in scripture, you know, in this this present world, that phrase, and then the glorious appearing, like the appearing of Jesus Christ, only shows up together one other time in scripture. It's crazy. It's like the Lord was intentional to, 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 to speak to me in this way. But if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. I got to go there too. <laughs> okay. So in 2 Timothy 4, we're going to see two different people. Right? We're going to see Paul, and then we're going to see a guy named Demas. Right? Right? In Philemon, and Demas was also known as a fellow helper to Paul. Right? He was doing the work of evangelist. He was doing, he, he was going on these mission trips with Paul and doing all of the Christian activity. But let's talk about Paul first. He said, so Paul is coming towards the end of his life. He says, For I am now ready to be offered. 
and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And let's hone in here. And not to me only, but, to, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Right? Paul, right? He, and he, he was like the evangelist. Right? He, he did all the right things. He, he was able to, to plant churches. And he's like our ensample. But his motivation wasn't out of obligation. His motivation for doing all of this Christian activity, for sharing the gospel, for discipling, for mentoring, for all of it, was, the, was his love for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we get to see the opposite end of Demas. Starting at verse 9, it says, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Right, so Demas's love was not for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love was for this present world. This is the last time we even see, we even see Demas in Scripture. Was him forsaking Paul? But he was doing the he was doing all the right things, though. Right, he was doing the mission trips. He was. He was a fellow helper and a fellow laborer to Paul. But at the end of the day, he loved this present world more than the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we see what happens. The next key point, key point number three, is eventually those that love this present world will forsake the mission of God and the people of God. So, Having all of this in mind, I just want to ask two questions, and you know, if singers want to come up, you can do that. Um, but I would beg of you to consider: Have you truly accepted God's grace? Have you made that personal decision? Because if you haven't, like we talked about. Not because I said so, but because the Bible said so. You're not a Christian. We can do all this Christian activity. We can say the right things. We can try to live as good as we can. But if we have not accepted His grace and made the personal decision, we are not a Christian. Okay, that's, that's the who still needs to accept God's grace. But to those who have accepted His grace and are living the Christian life and are running the race like Paul was talking about, are you like Demas or are you like Paul? Do you still have little bits or corners in your life that you have love for the world and the things that it offers? Or, are, or is your mind fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and His appearing. 
Because we know the end of the story for both of Demas and Paul. One forsook God's mission, and one was awaiting his return. So with that, um, that's really all I had. And um, Please, I'm, I'm begging you. Take into consideration, what is your motivation for living this Christian life? Is it obligation or is it the appearing of Jesus Christ and that you'll see Him again? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just love You and just thank You for Your Word and how clear it is. God, um, I just pray for anyone who needs to make a decision, whether it be salvation and accepting Your grace or simply repenting and, and keeping Your appearing in mind at the forefront of their mind and wanting to finish the race well. Oh, I love you. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. 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 Amen.